We've had a full day of complete silence with no instruction sessions in the morning or the afternoon. So that hopefully that gave the heart and the mind a chance to become even more settled, even more stable, more steadied in samadhi, which allows sati, mindfulness, to become even more refined. And it might sound a little paradoxical, but as the mind becomes more stable and steady, what becomes increasingly apparent is just how unstable and unsteady the rest of our experience is. In other words, we start to connect with the truth of impermanence and Nietzsche even more fully. And I've been emphasizing that in the last couple of guided meditations as we connect with the breath rising and falling, with physical sensations arising and passing away, sounds arising and passing away, thoughts, emotions, moods and mind states arising and passing away. And as we tune in to this ever-changing flow of experience, it usually brings with it a sense of ease, of openness, of equanimity. And because the baseline of experience is one of ease and openness and equanimity, it's easier to see when we move out of that into some form of clinging or grasping or craving or resisting experience. So in some ways we could understand the whole of the practice we're doing here as exploring this movement between clinging and release. Clinging and release on both small and large scales, knowing when we've got caught or identified with experience and also knowing those times when that clinging has released, when we're back in the flow of moment-to-moment experience without holding on to or solidifying any of it. So clinging and release is a kind of shorthand or condensation of the core teaching of the Buddha given in the Four Noble Truths. And I think pretty much all of you are familiar with these, so I'm not going to go into detail with them right now. But just as a quick reminder, the Four First Noble Truth, there is dukkha, stress, distress, unsatisfactoriness. Second noble truth, the cause of this dukkha is craving in various forms, including grasping, clinging, and resisting. The third noble truth is that it is possible for that craving to release so that we experience ease, happiness, peace, freedom from all afflictive states. And the fourth noble truth is the path that leads to that freedom, the noble eightfold path comprising right or wise view, right or wise intention, right or wise action, speech, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and samadhi. So although this path is laid out as as a sequence of eight factors, in actual practice it's more of a spiral. So here on this retreat, we've mostly been practicing with the last three factors, the meditative factors of right effort, right mindfulness, and right samadhi. 
But as these three work together to develop insight, that insight then feeds back to and informs the first factor of right or wise view. We see that actions have consequences. Consequences for ourselves and for others. And that clear seeing strengthens right or wise intention. The intention to cultivate simplicity or renunciation, kindness or metta, and compassion. So then, grounded in these skillful qualities, how we speak and act in the world begins to change for the better. We pay more attention to our livelihood, too. And livelihood in this context is not just paid work. It's also about however we spend our days, whether that's as employees or self-employed or students or caregivers or retirees or volunteers. We pay more attention to how we show up in our neighborhoods and our communities. And then because we're living more in alignment with our deepest aspirations, it's easier to develop the meditative factors of wise effort, wise mindfulness and wise samadhi on a more refined level. And then again, that feeds back into the first path factors. So we see this spiraling movement, each of the factors flowing into the next, the next, the next, strengthening each factor together to create a powerful momentum towards freedom. So in the beginning of this movement towards freedom, the insights that we discover are mostly on a more personal or psychological level. We get sudden flashes of clarity about, for example, our histories, our emotional patterns, our default personalities. And these personal insights are very useful. They help us to let go of unskillful ways of being in the world and to develop healthier relationships with ourselves and with each other. Then, as the practice progresses, we experience insights that are on a more impersonal, a more impersonal or universal level. Insights into what in the Buddha's teachings are known as the three universal characteristics of all experience, which I touched into briefly the other night, as anicca, dukkha, anatta. So the first one, anicca, the fact that everything is inconstant, changing, impermanent. The second one, dukkha, because everything is impermanent, it's dukkha, it's unsatisfactory, unreliable, imperfect. And the third characteristic, anatta, again, because everything is impermanent, there's no stable, fixed entity in here to whom all this is happening. It's just a constant flow of changing experiences that create the illusion of a permanent, fixed identity at the center of it all. And because the first of these three characteristics, anicca or impermanence, also informs the other two, I'd like to focus a bit more on impermanence tonight. And on one level, this is the easiest of the three to grasp, at least intellectually. It's pretty obvious that everything changes. I'm no longer five years old, for example, even if occasionally I still feel like I am. And my life is very different now than it was when I was five. 
and if I live to be 75, it will be different again. So we know that we're aging and changing, and we can look around and see that the seasons are changing. Even in the short time that we've been at Temoata, have any of you noticed that every morning it's just a little bit lighter? The wake-up bell comes and, oh, there's a glimmer of light now. Summer is on its way. So seasons change, the weather changes, the sun rises and sets. There are natural cycles of birth and death that we ourselves are also subject to. And for the most part, we accept the natural rhythm of change. And we're definitely willing to accept change when it results in the end of something that we didn't like or want. For example, when that knee pain finally releases, we're happy to acknowledge the truth of Anicca. But when it comes back again a few minutes later, we're not so keen on Anicca. We resist it and wish that the absence of knee pain would last a bit longer or even forever. And something in us still believes that we should be able to master impermanence so that we can make the bad stuff go away as quickly as possible and make the good stuff stick around forever. And it's obvious when we hear it like that, that that's a form of delusion of ignorance. But opening to this truth on deeper and deeper levels is not so easy because it does challenge such core beliefs. So the Buddha understood the resistance to the truth of change as a key source of suffering. In the Vipalasa Sutta, he named not seeing impermanence as a form of intense delusion. So the word vipalasa is sometimes translated as distortions or delusions, and sometimes even more strongly as, quote, perversions of perception, which is a pretty strong term. So I'd like to read you uh, an edited part of that sutta because it's so clear about the connection between not seeing clearly and suffering. The Buddha is reported to have said, these four practitioners are distortions of perception, distortions of thought, distortions of view, sensing no change in the changing, sensing pleasure in suffering, assuming self where there's no self, seeing the unlovely as lovely, gone astray with wrong views, beings misperceive with distorted minds. But when, in the world of darkness, Buddhas arise to make things bright, they, prevent, they present this profound teaching, which brings suffering to an end. When those with wisdom have heard this, they recuperate their right mind. They see change in what is changing, suffering where there's suffering, non-self in what is without self. They see the unlovely as such, and by this acceptance of right view, they overcome all suffering. So there's a lot that could be unpacked in just those few lines. But tonight I'd like to keep the focus on impermanence, on change, and look at some of the common ways that we tend to resist it, and then as a result to suffer.
So again, in this ex exploration, I'm going to be coming back to the gradual training that's laid out in the Satipatthana Sutta, which, as you all know by now, begins with establishing mindfulness of the body. And within this first establishment of mindfulness, there are six different meditative practices that aim to help us develop a more sane and realistic relationship to the body. We've already been practicing the first three of these six techniques, mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of the four postures of sitting, standing, walking and lying down, and then mindfulness of daily activities, such as getting dressed and undressed, eating and drinking, speaking and listening, even urinating and defecating are named as a practice in this section of the sutta. And then in between each of these techniques, there's a, a refrain that gives us general guidance about how to relate to the body. It says one abides contemplating the nature of arising in the body or one abides contemplating the nature of passing away in the body. One abides contemplating the nature of both arising and passing away in the body. Mindfulness that there is a body is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness and one abides independent not clinging to anything in the world. So you may remember those lines, I quoted them a little while back in relation to this invitation to cultivate bare awareness or bare attention, knowing the experiences in the body just as they are without adding our habitual reactions to them. And when we can do this, we come more directly into contact with the truth of the body's impermanence. We see very clearly that our physical sensations are constantly changing. And it's only our concepts about the body that are static. So, for example, right now, if I ask you to close your eyes and bring awareness to your left hand, what do you actually experience? Can you directly feel a thing called hand? Or is that a label that we apply as a kind of a visual image or a memory to where we think the hand should be? If we let go of the concept of hand and just connect with the direct experience of that region of the body, all we find are sensations, perhaps tingling or warmth, pressure, softness twitching, tingling, and so on. And the more we can keep releasing our concepts about the body, the more we come closer to the truth of its impermanent, impersonal nature. The truth that there is nothing unchanging, solid, or controllable to be found anywhere in the body. And these days, this... Uh, insubstantiality and changeability is being recognized by modern science through the use of high-tech instruments such as the electron scanning microscope. So I'd like to read you a description of what scientists are discovering about the body using this new technology. The electron scanning microscope 
with the power to magnify several thousand times, takes us down into a realm that has the look of the sea about it. As the magnification increases, the flesh begins to dissolve. Muscle fiber now takes on a fully crystalline aspect. We can see that it is made of long spiral molecules in orderly array. And all of these molecules are swaying like wheat in the wind, connected with one another and held in place by invisible waves that pulse many trillion times a second. What are the molecules made of? As we move closer, we see atoms, the tiny shadowy balls dancing around their fixed locations in the molecules, sometimes changing positions with their partners in perfect rhythm. And now we focus on one of the atoms. Its interior is lightly veiled by a cloud of electrons. We come closer, increasing the magnification. The shell dissolves and we look on the inside to find nothing. Somewhere within that emptiness we know is a nucleus. We scan the space and there it is, a tiny dot. At last we have found something hard and solid, a reference point. But no, as we move closer to the nucleus, it too begins to dissolve. It too is nothing more than an oscillating field, waves of rhythm. Inside the nucleus are other organized fields, protons, neutrons, even smaller particles. Each of these, upon our approach, also dissolves into pure rhythm. Of what is the body made? It is made of emptiness and rhythm. As the ultimate heart of the body, at the heart of the world, there is no solidity. Once again, there is only the dance. So as meditators, we don't need an electron microscope to understand the body in that way. As the sati and samadhi get stronger, we can know the body's lack of solidity and its radical impermanence very directly through our own experience. And that understanding, that direct experience, brings us into contact with just how miraculous this body actually is. So our bodies are constantly changing on small and large time frames. Nothing in our inner world is permanent. And likewise, Nothing in our outer world is permanent either. And the Buddha invited us to contemplate this too. How our environment is constantly changing on small and large time frames. Even this retreat center, even this room that we're sitting in now, even this room that we're sitting in now will at some point cease to exist. It might seem quite stable and permanent now, but like all conditioned things, it's subject to change. Natural forces such as fire or flood or landscape or earthquake could destroy it very quickly. Human forces such as financial collapse or social unrest or war could also destroy it quickly or slowly. 
and possibly at some point it will be abandoned and decay. The windows will break. The rain will come in and the floor will rot. The rafters will collapse. The roof will cave in. And eventually all of this seemingly solid structure will return to the earth. All the lush forest around us and all the creatures that inhabit it will reclaim this territory as their own. And likewise, our human bodies, much as we might resist our organic flesh and blood nature, at some point in the future, our bodies too will die. They'll cease to exist in this current form, releasing back into the elements. So you might notice as you hear this truth, if there's any ripple of response, in the body or the heart or the mind. Because in mainstream society, at least in Western-influenced society, there is almost a taboo around even naming this truth, the truth of our own impermanence. But in the Buddha's teachings, coming to terms with our own mortality is a significant aspect of the path to freedom. In fact, we can assess how much progress we've made on that path by the extent by the extent of our willingness to contemplate death. So tonight I wanted to give us an opportunity just to begin to touch into this topic, to notice our responses, and to begin training in meeting this truth of impermanence with wisdom and compassion. And before we go there, I just want to be very clear that the point of this practice is not to be morbid or depressing, as people sometimes think. Rather, it's to help us to wake up, to gain clarity, to gain wisdom, and as a result of that, to strengthen compassion, to strengthen kindness, to strengthen appreciation, gratitude, and equanimity, all of those skillful qualities that I touched into last night. So you might remember the lines I quoted a few nights ago about mindfulness that say, mindfulness is the path to the deathless. The heedless are as if already dead. I think most of us can probably understand the heedless part well enough. It's what happens whenever we go on autopilot Whenever we zone out, switch off, or react according to well-established and familiar patterns of conditioning. And we're like zombies then, sleepwalking our way through life. The term deathless, on the other hand, is not so easy to understand. And in my own practice, it was helpful last year when I spent time with Bhikkhu Analio in Australia to hear him say that the term deathless can refer to someone who has transcended their fear of death. And I'd already been practicing contemplation of death for quite a few years, uh, including working as a hospice volunteer. But this understanding of the deathless as being about transcending the fear of death was new to me. And it inspired me to re-engage with these practices in a whole new way seeing them 
as a tool, in a way, to reveal fear as an aspect of clinging of the second noble truth and how releasing that fear of death likewise became an aspect of the third noble truth, which is ultimately complete freedom of heart and mind. So again, just to emphasize that this is a training, it's a gradual path of exploration. And just as I was saying last night in relation to compassion, we definitely want to respect our boundaries, our edges, our limits, and not try to force our way through the defenses that all of us have around contemplating our own mortality. And instead, we practice gradually training to expand our comfort zones, opening up in small doses, and then integrating and metabolizing the ripples of anxiety or perhaps at times waves of fear that it may bring up. And I also want to acknowledge that some of you in this room are working with health challenges or other difficult life circumstances that mean for you this contemplation is not optional, it's very real and immediate. So to really listen to our own beings and sense into what feels appropriate for us to be exploring at this particular time. So this evening, my intention is to offer a gradual entry into this exploration, coming back to the Satipatthana Sutta and re-engaging with that first establishment, mindfulness of the body, this time touching into the last three of the six techniques there. And these techniques are, involve contemplating the body in, term of, in terms of its anatomical parts, and then contemplating the body in terms of its elemental nature. And then finally, contemplating the body as a corpse in decay. So you can probably understand why these last three are not very commonly taught in insight meditation centers, at least not in the West, in lay centers. But we began this exploration with quite a few of you yet, uh, last year when we were here and um it seemed to be pretty beneficial. So tonight, or perhaps over the next few days, we might uh, explore some of those practices a little bit. So the first one, contemplating the body in terms of its anatomical parts, is really just a way of connecting with the truth of its organic nature. Literally in terms of the organs and the skin and the flesh and the bones and so on. And unless we're a medical student or a nurse or a, perhaps a yoga teacher, not many of us tend to think about the organic nature of the body. So in my own practice, I was fortunate a few years ago to be able to go to an autopsy lab that was a teaching lab and look at cadavers, bodies that had been dissected for medical training purposes. And some of you may have had that opportunity too. And I don't know about for you, but for me, it was a very powerful experience. And just to say also that different cultures have different attitudes to death. So for some cultures, the whole idea of autopsy challenges some very deep cultural and religious beliefs around death. But even if we don't necessarily have uh, religious beliefs around death, there's still something very 
confronting about being in the presence of a, a dead human body. So I went to the autopsy lab with some apprehension, anticipating that it would be a gruesome or grueling experience. But before we viewed the cadavers, we got to speak with the director of the lab. And just the way she spoke about these corpses, to me, was very inspiring. I would have assumed, because she spent day after day cutting up these corpses, that she might have developed a sort of a bit of a blasé attitude to dealing with dead bodies. But it was clear from the way she spoke and the way that she treated each cadaver that she had enormous respect for the human body. So when the time came to look at the first cadaver, I felt a sense of awe, even a sense of sacredness, which is not a word that I use very often. And this body had been prepared so that we could see inside it, and we were able to identify the various organs, such as the pancreas and the gallbladder, the salivary glands, the brain, and so on. And just the complexity of the physical body was awe-inspiring. It's quite miraculous that all of those different formations of meat and bone within us have the ability to support a human life. So just the physical meat and bone aspect of the body is complex enough. But then we also have the chemical system of the hormones, hormones that are constantly being released to help us digest and sleep and wake up and regulate our moods and so on. And then interacting with the hormones is the electrical system within the body, the firing of neurons that are sending millions of messages to different parts of our bodies to keep the whole system responding appropriately. And it's incredible that all these different systems function together so well most of the time. But it was clear to me from being with those dissected corpses that this body is not what we could call myself. So then likewise in this next contemplation of the sutta where we contemplate the body in terms of its four elemental qualities, and here we understand the body is composed of qualities such as earth, water, fire, and air, just like the natural environment all around us. And when we contemplate this deeply, we understand that we're not as separate from the rest of nature as we'd like to think. And when we die, those same elements of our bodies are made of will return to the environment they came from. So perhaps as an abstract idea that sounds poetic, but when it comes to directly experiencing the impermanence of our bodies, most of us resist that change to varying degrees. And on a societal level, there are whole industries devoted to not to denying the truth that our bodies are aging. So the fact of aging, of moving towards dying, can bring up primal fear. And that most of us have spent all, has developed all kinds of strategies to avoid feeling. But no matter how much we might try to deny it, that fear is often driving us very unconsciously. 
And as we've been exploring, any kind of fear and denial only compounds our suffering. And yet, as I mentioned last night in relation to compassion, when we are able to turn towards suffering, in this case our fear of death, and meet it with kindness and care, eventually that suffering releases. So a few years ago, three or four years ago now, a friend of mine in the U.S. died of ovarian cancer. And as she was getting close to the end of her life, I asked her if there was anything that she wished she had known earlier or any kind of advice she might have for me from the vantage point of being near to her death. And she was quite weak at that stage, but she thought for a while and she finally said, practice letting go practice letting go on deeper and deeper levels and there was a sense of regret a little bit that she hadn't been doing that earlier because uh, from the time of her diagnosis to her death that she wasn't that long so this practice of letting go is woven into everything we've been exploring during this retreat and this brings us to the last series of contemplations contemplation of a corpse in decay and this part of the sutta definitely isn't taught very much so we want to ease into this gradually it's counterproductive as i said to force it but neither do we want to keep postponing it so again finding this middle way and sometimes young people think that this contemplation of death as a practice that's only relevant for old people like me. But this delusion of immortality is often very strong in young people. So in many ways, they need this practice even more than old people do. And younger people have the good fortune of potentially having more time to explore their own mortality gradually instead of waiting until closer to the end of life or getting some unwelcome diagnosis and suddenly realizing that time is running out. So there's also the truth that whether young or old, none of us actually knows when we're going to die. People die unexpectedly every day, every hour, every minute, every second. So it pays to start gently turning towards our own mortality now, knowing that it is inevitable and only the time of death is uncertain. So we don't have too much more time, but there's a series of contemplations devised by the 11th century Tibetan Buddhist scholar Atisha who uh, systematized a method for generating an enlightened mind through contemplating mortality and uh, as some of you know the American Zen Buddhist teacher Joan Halifax Roshi she has taken these nine training points from Atisha um, and worked on them into a series of practices developed also from the work of Larry Rosenberg. And so I thought just to touch into one or two of these nine contemplations, we won't have time to go into all of them in detail. 
But because you have been in silence most of today, I thought perhaps the mind is stable and steady. So you might like to just settle into a meditative posture now if you aren't already. And just allow some of these words and phrases into the heart, into the mind. So the first one, all of us will die sooner or later. Even though it may be difficult for you to realize that someday you will die, there is no question that you will be met by death sooner or later. There is no way around it. No one can prevent death. Death is the outcome of birth. It is inevitable. Your lifespan is decreasing continuously. Your lifespan lessens every moment that you live. There is the moment of your birth and then the time of your death. Life flows for better or worse between these two points of change. Your movement towards death never stops. Every breath you take in and give give out brings you closer to this destination that we call death. Every word you speak, every thought you have brings you nearer to death. <coughs> every step you take brings you closer to your so-called final resting place. Death will come, whether you are prepared or not. Life is short, and most of us will meet our death without having strengthened our awareness of our true nature. How much time do you now spend training, strengthening, and stabilizing your heart-mind? When death comes, do you think that you can negotiate with it for more time? Your lifespan, like that of all living beings, is not fixed. Think of the many beings who died this day. How many of them really thought they were going to die today? There is an essential uncertainty about the time of your death. Do you really think you know how much time you have left? Please consider this. Death has many causes. There are so many ways to die. The causes of death are infinite. You can die because of a storm or an accident. You can die of cancer, heart disease, diabetes, old age, 
and so forth. You can die of fear or a broken heart. Even if you have been diagnosed with a so-called terminal illness, it may not be the cause of your death. Your body is fragile and vulnerable. When you're young, you may feel as if you will live forever. Growing older, seeing other people die, you may know differently. Life hangs by a breath. Breathe in. After this next exhalation, consider the possibility that you might not be able to inhale. When the wind has gone from your nostrils and the breath no longer enters your body, then your lifespan has ended and you will die. Your loved ones cannot keep you from death. It's only natural to turn to friends and family at the time of your dying. However, the people whom you love cannot keep death from you, and these strong attachments may produce sorrow and clinging, which makes dying more difficult. Your loved ones are essentially helpless and powerless in the face of your dying. No matter how kind and adept your friends might be, ultimately they cannot prevent your death. There is nothing they can do for you at the moment of your death. Death will simply prevail. Look at this deeply. At the moment of your death, your material resources are of no use to you. Imagine yourself on your deathbed. You are growing weaker and more frail by the moment. You have spent your entire life earning money, accumulating material possessions. You have a beautiful house, a nice car jewelry and fine clothes. On the threshold of death, what good are these things to you? Your own body cannot help you at the time of your death. You have spent so much time working on your body, feeding it, watering it, exercising it, dressing and undressing it, beautifying it, enjoying and not enjoying it. You may spend hours just thinking about your body, viewing it in a mirror, evaluating its appearance, trying to make it look younger and more beautiful. Then what happens? It dies on you anyway.
Just noticing whatever responses there might be to those nine contemplations. And whatever comes up, seeing if you can meet it with kind curiosity, with compassion. Because the point of this practice is to strengthen the courage to live life more consciously, more fully. The more we can soften our fear of death, the more room we have in our hearts for the Brahma-viharas to emerge. Kindness, compassion, <coughs> appreciative joy and equanimity. So may our touching into the truth of our own mortality tonight help begin to soften fear and strengthen wisdom and compassion. Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. <coughs> 